0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard got speed, john glenn roger zero g and i feel fine might be out. okay i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be
1: the new record holder at last huh when that baby light no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Captain, uh,
0: Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for
1: mankind.
2: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Aniston. You're listening to episode 278 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, leaving the moon.
1: It's Apollo Control, Houston. uh, 75 hours, uh, 58 minutes now into the flight. Apollo 13, presently uh, 3,573 nautical miles out from the moon, traveling at a velocity of uh, 4,943 feet per second. Our clock in mission control shows uh, we're at 1 hour, 10 minutes, uh, 30 seconds away from time of loss of signal as Aquarius and Odyssey uh, pass above the uh, backside of
2: the moon. Lovell's disappointment with not being allowed to run another star check was quickly becoming academic since the time to conduct it was running out anyway. The spacecraft's proximity to the front side of the moon meant it was less than an hour and a half away from arcing around the backside and loss of signal. The loss of signal would be briefer than it was the last time Lovell made the trip. Because unlike the Apollo 8 crew, whose first job upon disappearing behind the lunar surface was to perform a lunar insertion burn, the Apollo 13 crew would do nothing like that. Passing behind the west side of the moon at 77 hours and 8 minutes into the flight, they would come flying around the east side just 25 minutes later, their speed having been gravitationally increased during the time they were out of contact with the Earth. Two hours later, they would have to be ready to fire their engine for the Paracenthium Plus 2 burn. Hi, uh, Houston.
0: Okay, uh, about all we have to do is to uh, send up your state vectors and target loads, and uh, that'll have to wait a couple of minutes uh, till we get ready to do so. And if you're ready to copy, I can give you a P30 maneuver pad for PC plus two, and after that, probably you should eat, and then we'll regroup again to send up other things. Over.
2: Copy, P-30, a PC-plus 2. Okay. While Hayes readied his notepad and pen, Capcom brand read up the new data, calling out vectors and yaw angles and eventually Earth landing targets, and Hayes copied them down and read them back. Lovell heard concern in the Capcom's voice, but he was pleased to find that he felt a relative sense of calm as the loss of signal and the burn itself approached. Unlike the free return burn they made earlier, the PC plus 2 burn would be a long, strong one, with the engine firing for 5 seconds at minimum thrust, then 21 seconds at 40% thrust, and finally 4 minutes at full thrust. Like the free return burn, it would be initiated and terminated by the computer, with Lovell handling only the throttle that would control the strength of the burn. If the engine did not fire at precisely 79 hours, 27 minutes, and 40 seconds, Lovell would take over that function too using two bright red silver dollar sized buttons with the words start and stop stenciled beneath them on the commander's side of the spaceship. The buttons provided a direct link between the descent engine and the batteries and when pressed, they would bypass the computer and ignite the engine on command. Though it was only a late ignition that would require Lovell to hit the start switch, there were many situations in which he would hit stop. Capcom Vance Brand transmitted the conditions for a PC Plus 2 Burn Abort.
0: Go ahead. Uh, Jim, whenever you're uh, through eating and and ready to uh, copy the info, I can send you the burn rules. Okay. Okay. First of all, uh, general philosophy is that these rules should be similar to LOI mode one abort with the tight limits. Uh, Now I'll go through them one by one for you to copy. Okay. You should shut down if any of the following happen. Thrust monitor readout 77% or below. Uh, Dips propellant tank pressure, that's the inlet pressure. Onboard board readout one six zero or below fuel to ox delta p greater than twenty five psi and that would have to be a ground call to you attitude error plus or minus ten degrees with the exception of the start transient <coughs> rate limits plus or minus ten degrees a second And you should uh, shut down if you get any of the following alarms. Engine gimbal, ISS plus program alarm, LGC, CES, DC. And if you get an inverter light after switching inverters.
2: According to mission rules, the commander would be required to terminate the burn maneuver if his thruster or fuel pressure fell too low, if his oxidizer pressure climbed too high, if his attitude drifted by 10 degrees or more, or if his instrument panel flashed any one of six battery, computer, or engine gimbal alarms. Worst of all, Lovell knew what would happen if he received an alarm telling him that the helium tanks in the fuel system were becoming overpressurized. Rather than using malfunction prone pumps to force engine fuel into the lines in the descent stage of the limb, NASA engineers relied on compressed helium fed from high pressure tanks channeled into the fuel lines. The inert gas would not react with the explosive hypergolic fluid but would instead push it along to the combustion chamber. The system was nearly flawless, with just one exception. Helium has the lowest boiling point of all the elements, so the slightest change in temperature would cause it to vaporize and expand. Compressing a gas that requires so much elbow room into a highly confining tank can be a recipe for disaster, and in order to prevent pressure explosions, NASA equipped the line that ran from the tank with a diaphragm-like high-pressure burst disk. In the event of a sudden pressure increase, the diaphragm would rupture, releasing the gas before the pressure climbed too high. Venting the helium meant that the engine would no longer be able to fire, but in a normal lunar flight, that would not be a problem. The helium system was not intended to be heated up and switched on until the descent engine was ready to burn. And the descent engine was designed to burn only once, carrying the lunar module from lunar orbit to lunar landing. Any rupture of the burst disk after that would take place on the moon's surface, where the engine would already have been permanently shut down and the gas could escape harmlessly into the surrounding vacuum. But the problem Lovell was now struggling with was what would happen on a mission in which the engine had to be fired and shut down and fired again and shut down again. If the burst disc in the overworked fuel line should blow now, the descent propulsion system would be lost for good. Despite all of this, Lovell felt a surprising equanimity as the burn approached. And while Hayes continued taking data dictation from Brand, the commander took another moment to glance out his window. As it turned out, he picked just the right moment. At 76 hours, 42 minutes, and 7 seconds into the mission, the sun set behind the moon and Apollo 13 moved completely into shadow. Outside the spacecraft, the sparkling debris at last disappeared, and on all sides of the ship, at all angles and in all axes, the sky was suddenly lit up with curtains of ice-white stars. Yeah, look at those stars.
0: All right, Houston. Uh, go ahead, Chris. We're entering the
2: shadow of the moon now. The sun is just about set as far as I can see, and uh, the stars are all coming up. Is that Nunkey out there? Hayes asked. Turning to the window and pointing to the star Lovell had barely spotted earlier, but that now stood out like a lighthouse beacon. Yes, said Lovell, and I can see in Terry's much better. What's that cloud over there? Swaggart asked, leaning over Lovell's shoulder. The Milky Way, Lovell answered, indicating the bright white band that bisected the sky. No, not the illuminated one, Swigert said. The dark one, actually two dark ones that look like contrails. Lovell followed Swigert's gaze and saw a pair of eerily dark columns blotting out some of the newly visible stars. I can't for the life of me figure out what that would be, he said, It might be debris that was thrown out there. From our maneuvers? Hayes asked. No, Lovell said, from our explosion. All three astronauts looked at the clouds and fell quiet. It had been close to 24 hours since last night's sudden jolt and bang and the sense memory of the experience had begun to fade. But these ghostly black fingers extending from their ship and reaching out into space brought it instantly back. It still wasn't clear what had gone wrong in the rear of their spacecraft, but lest they forget, it had made a smoking mess out of a vehicle that was supposed to be all but indestructible. Capcom Brand's voice broke the quiet.
0: it's Houston, over. Okay, Jim, we have a little over two minutes till LOS, and uh, everything's looking good here.
2: Uh, Roger. The Apollo 13 crew fell back into silence, and two minutes later, the signal from Houston disappeared.
1: We've uh, had loss of signal with Apollo 13 as it passes above the backside of the moon. We're at 77 hours, 9 minutes, and now to the flight of Apollo 13.
2: The crew remained subdued as they slipped past Earthshine and into the absolute darkness and radio silence behind the moon. Since only a crescent on the western end of the front of the moon was in shadow, only a corresponding crescent on the diagonal end of the backside was illuminated. For most of Apollo 13's transit around the moon, therefore, there was nothing but shadow beneath the ship. The only thing that revealed the moon was below them was the utter absence of stars, an absence that began where the ground ought to begin and ended in the distance where the horizon ought to start. For close to 20 minutes, the astronauts coasted over this nighttime nothingness, until just five minutes before reacquisition of signal. A white-gray sickle of mottled turf appeared in the distance. Hayes, at his right-hand window, saw it first and reached for his camera. Lovell, at his left-hand window, saw it next and nodded less in rapture than recognition. Swigert, who had never seen such a thing before, grabbed his camera and glided toward Lovell Station, and the commander floated backwards to let his rookie crewmate see what was unfolding below. Sliding beneath the ship, just as it had slid beneath Apollo 8 almost 16 months earlier, was the same desolate stretch that had never been glimpsed by human beings until 1968, and that now had been seen by more than a dozen human beings. Swaggert and Hayes, like Borman, Lovell, and Anders before them, were transfixed. They scanned the mares and the craters, the reels and the hills, the great sweep of the lunar terrain. In respectful silence, unlike the crews aboard previous ships, this crew wasn't passing overhead at 60 miles, but at 139 miles, the furthest humans had ever been from Earth. And unlike the crews of previous Apollos, they weren't here to stay. As soon as they passed to the eastern side, they would begin climbing away. Five minutes later, at the appointed time for reacquisition of signal, Lovell pressed his microphone switch to its transmit setting and tried to contact Houston.
1: Coming up now on uh, one minute to AOS, and we'll stand by and continue to monitor. This is Apollo Control, Houston.
0: Aquarius, Houston. Uh, Houston, how do you read Aquarius. Ah, Aquarius, Houston. Uh, reading you about three by three. Uh, Houston, Aquarius, how do you read? Okay, Fred, uh, reading you uh, fairly well now. How do you read? Okay, I read you uh, loud and
2: clear, man. Roger. Lovell looked over Swigert's shoulder and glanced at the formation moving by below him. It was Mare Smithy. Both Swigert and Hayes commented that they were zooming past the moon now. Oh, see where we're zooming off.
0: oh yeah. Yeah, we're no longer we yeah,
2: Then Jim reminded Mission Control that they still needed the power up time for the burn.
0: Uh, go ahead, Grayson. We still want an activation start time for our uh, burn. I understand? Uh, you want a, a power up uh, time? Is that a firm? That's affirmed. Okay. Stand by.
2: Brand clicked off the line, and while Hayes and Swigert remained at the windows with their cameras, Lovell began moving around the cockpit, nervously fussing with his breakers in preparation for the power-up. Drifting from one section of his instrument panel to another, he found himself reaching around Hayes and Swigert, occasionally muttering an, Excuse me, Fredo," or I'm sorry, Jack. The limb pilot and the command module pilot would respond to their commander with a nod absently moving out of the way to allow Lovell to reach what he needed, and then floating back in place. After two or three minutes of this, Lovell stopped and backed up onto the ascent engine cover, which was normally Swagger's station, and folded his arms. Gentlemen, he said in a voice deliberately too loud for the tiny cockpit, What are your intentions? Startled, Hayes and Swigert spun around. Our intentions, Swigert said. Yes, said Lovell. We have a PC plus two maneuver coming up. Is it your intention to participate in it? Jim, Hayes said somewhat feebly. This is our last chance to get these shots. We've come all the way out here. Don't you think they are going to want us to bring back some pictures? If we don't get home, you'll never get them developed, Lovell said. Okay, look it. Let's get the camera squared away and let's get all set to burn. We've got one chance now. We're not going to hack it with a splashdown at 152 hours. Hayes and Swigert stowed their cameras and returned to their stations. And for the next hour or so, the crew worked purposefully, with Brand dictating the power-up instructions and the crew activating the appropriate switches. Aquarius' systems were slowly armed and brought online. As with the lunar orbit insertion burn on Apollo 8, the Apollo 13 astronauts waited in silence for the final few minutes leading up to their maneuver to tick away. There would be no canvas restraints for the pilots to use this time, no couches to strap themselves safely into. Instead, they would simply stand, brace themselves against the bulkhead, and absorb the sudden thrust and feel the subtle press of acceleration through their now comfortably zero-G bodies. Lovell looked over at Hayes and flashed a thumbs up. Then looked over his shoulder at Swigert and did the same thing. Capcom Brand interrupted the silence.
0: By the way, uh, Aquarius, we see the results now from uh, 12's seismometer. Looks like your booster just hit the moon and it's uh, rocking it a little bit. Over. Well, at least something worked on this flight say, I'm sure glad we didn't
2: have a limb impact, too. Lovell looked down at the moon as if he could see the scatter of dust and small crater created by the latest projectile to hit the lunar surface. What he saw instead was a tiny, perfectly triangular mountain tucked among the craters and hills that lined the edge of the Sea of Tranquility. It was Mount Marilyn, hailing him back as he climbed up And away, presumably forever.
1: Apollo Control Houston, uh, 79 hours, uh, 17 minutes. uh, Flight Director Gene Krantz now going around the room for a go no go status from each member of his team.
2: 10 minutes to burn, Hayes announced shortly after he called 8 minutes to burn.
0: Aquarius Houston, over. Go ahead, Houston. Jim you are go for the burn. Go for the burn. Roger
1: runners there. Go for the burn. This is Apollo Control Houston. Uh, We're a little over six minutes now away from time of scheduled ignition at 79 hours 21 minutes. Meanwhile in Mission Control the uh, both the viewing room and uh, floor of the Mission Operations Control Room uh, have filled up with a considerable number of people. Among those here tonight uh, are Dr. Thomas Paine, NASA Administrator, Mr. George Lowe, uh, Deputy Administrator of NASA, Frank Borman, uh, who uh, commanded the flight of Apollo 8, and uh, Jiminy 7, and uh, had a flying companion named Jim Lovell. Ken Mattingly is here. Al Shepard, commander of Apollo 14 is uh, on the Moker floor at this time, as is Ed Mitchell, the uh, lunar module pilot, along with uh, Stu Rusa, who is scheduled to fly in the command module for that flight. We're coming up on uh, five minutes until scheduled time of ignition. Uh, Gene Krantz has checked uh, with a couple of his systems or members of his flight control team who monitor systems Uh, they indicate they're happy with uh, the data they're looking at now we're standing by continuing to monitor this is Apollo Control Houston
2: Hayes announced four minutes to burn and finally Brand at his Capcom station took up the call
0: three minutes Counting down to three minutes, and I'll give you a mark, and I'll take into consideration two seconds. Mark. Roger, we got you.
2: Lovell looked at his mission timer, marked the time that remained, drew a breath, and held it. It reminded him of his night flight in the Sea of Japan all over again. When his cockpit blacked out and the prow of his ship pointed toward the glowing blue algae streak of earth. He watched the clock count down to zero and felt the limb rumble to life beneath his feet. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 278 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled, Apollo 13, Leaving the Moon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Well, I have some very good news. We are all the way caught up with the main RSS feed. Episodes 1 through 104 are available on the archive, and the rest are available on the main feed. It's taken about a year and a quarter or so to get caught up with that, and we are finally there. Today, we salute my Shooting Star Emoji donors. These donors have contributed for five years in a row, and they receive a Shooting Star Emoji next to their name on the donor's page. Thank you, Shooting Star Donors, for your continued support. Okay, the sources I used for this episode were the same as last time, so I won't read them all out to you. And what I will want to do now is I've been requested several times to do a review of the movie First Man, and I would like to give you that review right now. Okay, before I start, I want to do a spoiler alert. If you have not seen First Man, this review definitely contains spoilers. So stop listening now. I have only seen this movie one time, and that was about three weeks ago, so I may leave some of the details out. But here's what stands out to me right now. First Man was not about the Apollo 11 moon landing. It was more of a biography of Neil Armstrong during the 1960s. This was not a technically detailed movie, There were many, many details that could have been put in about the landing and greatly increased the drama. But, as I said, it was not about the moon landing. Some of the things I liked were the movie showed some of the sacrifices made to get to the moon, particularly in terms of human loss. The Elliot C. and Charles Bassett plane crash, The movie did an excellent job of covering the Apollo 1 fire when we lost Grissom White and Chaffee, and Neil's near-death experience on Gemini 8, and with the lunar landing research vehicle when he had to eject before crashing, and I loved the scene at the beginning of Neil flying the X-15. That was great. The movie also showed Neil's personal loss of his daughter, which was very sad. And the movie showed the protest of the Apollo 11 flight and, for the most part, great special effects. And the movie included the gesture Neil made for his deceased daughter while on the moon. Now, the things I didn't like. Buzz, I thought, was portrayed just a little harshly. And the argument about who was going to take the first step was completely overlooked in the movie, not mentioned. As well as Buzz's communion on the moon, that was not mentioned either. And a a little nitpicking here. There was way too much shaking during the launch of Apollo 11. The astronauts reported back, the ones that I've read, all say that it's a smoother start when you're launching on the Apollo vehicles. The landing, the lunar landing, could have lasted longer and gotten in a couple more details and that would have really added to the drama. The moon's surface was not powdery, not enough for my taste anyway, and the simulation of one-sixth gravity was not consistent. My biggest disappointment was the performance of Ryan Gosling as Armstrong. I don't know if the director told him to play Neil in such a sedated manner or he decided to do that himself. But his portrayal was very wooden and one-dimensional. And that dimension was grief. Almost all the movie, Neil is portrayed as the grieving astronaut even when he makes it to the moon. Now, Neil, like most people, was not one-dimensional. So I found that a little bit distracting. To me, there wasn't a flag controversy. It was plastered everywhere on the movie, so you knew it was the United States doing the landing. And it was shown on the moon as well, they just did not show the uh, putting it in the ground. To sum things up, the movie was pretty accurate, but not detailed, and I understand that you only have two and a half hours for the movie, so I can excuse that. But the portrayal of Neil, and to a lesser degree, Buzz, I did not enjoy. So I will award this movie four out of five stars, and that is my opinion. Your mileage may vary. Okay, moving on. I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We received support from several donors this week. David W. from California donated at the Mercury level. Debbie T. from the flatlands of Cambridgeshire, England donated at the Mercury level. Kevin H. donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned his rocket emoji. James B. from Sydney, Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Dirk W. from the Netherlands pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Kevin H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. So, our Patreon donors are up to 199. That leaves us 19 short for the year. Our goal is to make it to 218 by the end of the year. We appreciate your consideration in that matter because we're getting very close to the end of the year. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 381 and our goal was 418. So, we need 37 more donors before the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I appreciate that. And this week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Scott Harvey. That's Scott Harvey. If you will email me and tell me your address, I will mail out this logo to you. Alright folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 279 out by next Thursday. So long for now.